Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter schiff show both the s p 500 and the nasdaq rose to all-time record highs today nominal highs of course the dow jones didn't quite make it to a new high it did close better than 50 points higher 27,192. but probably the most interesting thing about the record high in the dow is what's actually happening to corporate profits and i'm talking about operating profits which are profits before you subtract interest and taxes. And I'm looking at some new statistics that came out today. There were some revisions that came out from the government, some of them to GDP, which I will get to a bit later in the podcast. But just looking at corporate operating profits, it turns out that operating profits actually peaked in the third quarter of 2014, right? That is while Obama was still president a couple of years uh, or a few years before Uh, Trump was president. So corporate profits, operating profits peaked in Q3 of 2014. And they've basically been going sideways ever since, although they've been dipping recently. And if you take a look at the last quarter, operating profits are now the lowest they've been since 2011. Now, the Dow Jones finished 2011 at about 12,000. 12,200, I think, was the end print. Well, we've more than doubled since then, right? The stock market has more than doubled, but operating profits haven't gone anywhere. I mean, how are you doubling uh, stock values uh, when the profits are staying the same? Now, of course, it's not the profits. Profits have gone up, but not operating profits. But operating profits are really more important 
if you want to look at what's going on in the companies uh, that are in these averages. Because operating profits is how much money the companies make from operating their businesses, right? So actual profits have risen even though operating profits have not. Now, why is that? Well, one, we got the big tax cuts. Corporate tax uh, cut rates went way down. And so that enabled after-tax earnings to rise. So that provided a boost to the U.S. stock market. But these corporate tax cuts are temporary. They are not permanent. Corporate taxes are going to be raised, especially if I'm right about Trump being a one-termer. The Democrat who succeeds Trump is going to raise corporate taxes. So to say that stocks should be more valued based on a temporary boost to earnings because of tax cuts that are unsustainable is a mistake. And in fact, I think that the Democrats may end up raising corporate taxes to a level that was higher than they were before Trump cut them. Now, the other thing that has been boosting corporate profits is the interest expense. Interest expenses aren't falling because corporations are delevering. It's actually the opposite. Corporations have more debt now than they had back in 2011. It's that they've been able to finagle that debt. They've been able to take advantage of these low interest rates, even though the Fed has notched them up a little bit, they're still extremely low. And so what corporations have been able to do to pad their earnings is by finding ways to reduce their interest expense on the rising value of their debt. So it's basically accounting. It is taking risk by financing with debt and using shorter term debt that has a bigger risk once uh, the debt matures. And based on the tax cuts, we have been able to make it look like American corporations are actually more profitable, but they're not. These are ticking time bombs because we know corporate taxes are going to go up and we know interest rates are going to go up eventually. The Fed is going to lose control. Interest rates are going to rise sharply, particularly for corporations. And that's going to destroy uh, corporate profits, plus operating profits are going to continue to fall in the next recession. In fact, during the next recession, if corporations weren't able to increase their operating profits during the longest you know, economic expansion, so-called expansion in history, right? with all of this economic growth, supposedly, corporations have not been able to increase their operating profits. They've simply been able to increase their total profits because of help from the government cutting taxes and the Fed cutting rates. Well, if they couldn't grow their earnings in that environment, what is going to happen to corporate profits during the next recession? They are going to completely implode, right? But the, 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 the biggest story I think today is not you know the lack of growth in, in, in corporate operating profits, but it is the fiction of growth in the U.S. economy because we got the numbers today for second quarter GDP and the number came out better than estimate. So, of course, all of the reporting today is about how the economy grew faster than what everybody had estimated. And, of course, you know, the consensus was actually pretty high. They were looking for 1.9% growth. Uh, that would have been a slowdown from the 3.1% in Q1. But a lot of people, including me, were looking for a number lower than that. In fact, the Atlanta Fed 
They reduced their estimate yesterday for Q2. I think they went down to 1.2 or 1.4. I forget where it was, uh, but it was considerably below that 1.9 consensus number. But we ended up getting 2.1. And we got that 2.1 despite a significant rise in the deflator, which is something I talked about when we got the GDP number last time. We had a very low number, 1.3. They revised that up to 1.4. But I said that that was a one-off thing and that it would be reversed uh, in Q2. And it was. We ended up getting a deflator of 2.4. That's against expectations of 1.9. So even though the deflator was a full half a percentage point more than what the, the, the consensus was, instead of GDP coming out at 1.4, you know, based on the 1.9 estimate, which would have been pretty much in line with the Atlanta Fed, we ended up getting 2.1. So how did we end up getting such a, a big print? Even though 2.1 is not a big number, right? Just look, you know, on its own, but it's certainly larger than was what was expected. Well, if you actually look beneath the numbers, you'll find that it really was a disaster. I mean, this was a horrible quarter for GDP. I mean, the most important part of GDP, right, which is in business investment, was actually down, right? Gross private domestic investment was down 5.5%. That is the weakest quarter since the fourth quarter of 2015. Um, Non-residential business investment was down 06 That was the first time that we've seen a drop in that category since the first quarter of 2016. Um, Residential investment down 1.5%. Actually, that uh, residential investment now down six quarters in a row. That that hasn't happened since 2009, right? And that's when we were in the recession, the Great Recession. If you look at net exports trade, uh, that subtracted uh, 0.63%. Uh, from the GDP. It was 5.2% down, uh, net net exports down 5.2%. That was the biggest subtraction from GDP for net exports in a decade. I mean, terrible. So we have business investment falling, uh, exports collapsing, the economy is weak. But why did we have the big print in GDP? Well, two reasons. One is government spending, right? Government spending was up 5% on the quarter, 5% increase in government spending. That added 0.85 percentage points to the GDP. Now, actually, too, if you look at non-defense spending, right? Non-defense spending in the quarter, the second quarter of 2000, and, uh, 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 second quarter of 2019, was up 15.9%. Let's call it 16%. In one quarter, the last time government spending, non-defense spending, grew that much in a single quarter. It was 21 years ago. So think about this. I mean, during that time, we've had two recessions, right? Including the Great Recession uh, in 08 and 09. Yet non-defense spending, domestic spending, rose last quarter by more than it did in any quarter during either of those recessions. Think about that. You know, Trump keeps complaining that we're not getting as much monetary stimulus as Obama got, right? But look at all the fiscal stimulus that we're getting that Obama didn't get, right? I mean, if the government normally increases spending when the economy is weak, right? They're trying to help the economy. It doesn't work as much of Keynesian nonsense, but generally in a recession, they increase uh, domestic spending, right? They try to get a fiscal stimulus 
to the economy. Yet the fiscal stimulus that we're getting now is larger than what we've gotten in the prior two recessions. Yet we're getting this stimulus when the economy isn't even in recession. I mean, if the economy is so good, why does it need so much fiscal stimulus? And if it's getting so much fiscal stimulus, and if you believe fiscal stimulus works, why isn't GDP even stronger? In fact, if you look at uh, the GDP growth for all of uh, 2018, it was 2.9%. You know, the uh, 2017, the year before that, it was 2.4%. I mean, these are not spectacular numbers. Now, in fact, they did increase 2017 a couple of points from 2.2 to 2.4. So it's a little better, but actually it's a double-edged sword because I remember the Trump administration was trying to claim that they got 3% growth uh, quarter over quarter between the fourth quarter of 2017 and the fourth quarter of 2018. Well, now that they tweaked the numbers, it turns out that that quarter over quarter growth rate is only 2.5% now because they increased uh, you know, the starting point. So there's no way that Trump can try to pretend that he got 3% growth in any year-over-year period because it was 2.5% now uh, quarter to quarter and the calendar year, the full calendar year GDP growth rate for 2018 was just 2.9%. And these numbers are not that much different than Obama. Obama got 2.9% GDP growth in 2015. Obama got 2.5% GDP growth in 2014. So if you look at Obama's two consecutive years of 2014 and 2015, the economy grew slightly faster than it did during Trump's two years of 2017 to 2018. Where is the difference? You know, we borrowed all this money, right? We borrowed much more money in 2017 and 2018 than we did in 2015 and 2016. Granted, interest rates are a little bit higher now. We have a little bit less monetary stimulus now than we had then, but we have a whole lot more fiscal stimulus now than we had then, but we have nothing to show for it. We've had less growth. All this talk about this booming economy under Trump is a bunch of fake news, and the data that we're getting proves that. I mean, by the way, too, I'm reading a lot of this uh, statistics on the GDP right off my son Spencer's uh, Twitter account. He does a good job of uh, looking through these numbers, you know, and then, uh, you know, tweeting about them. But you really have to think about what this means. So the economy supposedly grew at 2.1%, despite a decline in business investment, despite the fact that corporate operating profits are falling, despite the fact that trade is collapsing, right? The only reason that the GDP went up is because governments spend a lot of money. Oh, and I forgot to mention consumer spending. Consumer spending was up 4.3%. That contributed 2.85% to the GDP. I mean, almost all of it, right? Uh, consumer spending is 70% uh, of that GDP number. Uh, so consumers really spending a lot of money. And in fact, most of the stories that I was hearing today were about the consumer and how the consumer rescued the economy. Well, the problem is if the consumer rescued the economy, who's going to rescue the consumer? Because if you look at where the consumer is getting that money, it's from credit. Year over year, consumer credit has increased by 5%. So what is driving consumer spending is debt. So the entire GDP is a function of debt. 
whether it's the consumer borrowing money and spending it or the government borrowing money and spending it. And of course, a lot of the money consumers are spending, they get from the government, but the government gets the money from borrowing it. So we have this massive increase in government debt. And that is what is driving the economy. I mean, that is the truth. Once it's laid bare, you want to know the secret to the supposed success of the Trump economy. It's got nothing to do with industry and business. Corporate profits are falling. Investment is falling. And we are losing on trade. The trade deficits are bigger than ever. So Trump did not do anything to improve the real economy. For all the talk about deregulation and tax cuts, America's industrial base, American industry, has not improved. What has improved is we've spent more borrowed money. That's it. That is the secret. I mean, could you imagine if Donald Trump campaigned on that, if that was his slogan, elect me and I am going to run the deficits through the roof? I am going to grow government spending faster than any modern president. I am going to increase the national debt. I am going to tear apart all of the restraints that the 2011 Tea Party Congress uh, put into the budget to try to limit government spending. I'm going to blow that up. I'm going to blow the roof off the debt ceiling, right? And we're going to have massive increases in government uh, spending. I'm going to increase welfare spending. I'm going to increase military spending. We're going to build an economy on the foundation of government spending. And we're going to encourage individuals to go out and borrow a bunch of money and spend that too. We're going to run up the national credit card, consumer credit, auto loans, student loans, uh, credit card debt. Uh, everybody's going to borrow. We're all going to spend. And that's going to be the secret to our economic growth. It's going to be a good old-fashioned, priming the pump, government-fueled expansion. I mean, what conservative would have voted for Donald Trump if that was his promise? I mean, he wouldn't have won a single primary if he promised that. And it's amazing that it's not being exposed. I mean, I know why Trump and the Republicans don't want to tell the truth about this. Wall Street doesn't want to tell the truth. They, they want people thinking everything is great. Everything is not great. Now, the media, of course, controlled by the liberals. The, where, you know, As I said on my last podcast, I mean, maybe uh, they're, they're holding off on this so they can spring it on Trump and flip the narrative when it gets closer to the election. But for all the talk about how great this economy is, this is actually the worst economy. It may be the worst economy in the history of America. Now, people are going to say, Peter, how could you say the economy is so bad, right? Because we have low unemployment, we have a high stock market, the GDP is growing. That's not what I'm talking about. Because those statistics do not tell you what's actually happening in the real economy. Look, if you go back and look at the numbers in 2007, right, especially the numbers that we were given at the time, because they went back and revised them later and made them a lot lower. But if you go back and look at the numbers we were getting, everybody thought we had a great economy in 2007, including Larry Kudlow, who was telling us how great the economy is now. Uh, back then, he was saying it was the greatest story never told, that we had this fantastic economy and that the media wasn't giving Bush enough credit for how great the economy was. Well, the economy wasn't great in 2007. That's why we had the financial crisis. That's why we had the worst recession since the Great Depression, because the economy was lousy. You see, it was a bubble. So if growth is driven by a bubble, if growth is a function of too much debt, 
if people were borrowing money against the inflated values of their homes and spending it, and it was the spending of that borrowed money that was driving GDP, that was not a good economy. That was a bad economy. That was an economy uh, headed for disaster, right? So that's what we have now. This is not a good economy. This is an even bigger bubble. This is a disaster. We are simply making one mistake after another. And when the bubble pops, that is when the mistakes have to be corrected. We made a lot of mistakes uh, during the time period of the housing bubble. And it was, you know, we had a massive collapse uh, when that bubble popped. The fact that the Fed has been able to kick the can down the road for a decade, think about all the mistakes that we've made during the last 10 years. So this is the biggest bubble ever. This is the worst economy ever because we've made the most mistakes ever. We are more out of whack now than we've ever been. And because this is the worst economy ever, it will produce the deepest recession ever. We're going to have a bigger bust that follows this boom. But this boom is not a good economy, right? It is a bubble. Bubbles are bad. They're never good. So this is the biggest bubble yet. So it's the worst economy yet. In fact, if you want to look at some of these other statistics, the GDP growth in the uh, dot-com bubble era, which is the decade that ended in, in, in 2001, and that is when Clinton was president, the average growth rate for GDP was 3.6% during those 10 years, 3.6%. And then when that busted, that bubble popped, we had a kind of mild recession. Then the next expansion under Bush, which went from 2001 through 2007, GDP grew an average of 2.9% during that larger bubble. So we had a bigger bubble, but we actually had a slower GDP growth, right? 2.9%. So as the bubble got bigger, the economic growth slowed down. But then when that bubble popped, the recession that ensued was much worse. So the 09 recession was much worse than the 01 recession, even though we had smaller GDP growth that preceded it. And that's because that GDP growth, even though smaller, was defined by even bigger mistakes because the Fed held interest rates artificially lower during that time period than it had during the prior time period. Well, now look at this expansion. This recent expansion is about 10 years old, but the average rate of growth in this expansion is now down to 2.3. And that includes the growth under Obama and the current so-called growth under Trump. So we went from growth of 3.6 to growth of 2.9 to now growth of 2.3. So you'll notice as the size of the bubbles get bigger, the actual annual rate of GDP growth gets smaller. But what also happens is though the, the growth rates get smaller, each bubble when it pops produces a more severe recession. So the 2008 recession was more severe than the 2001 recession, even though the 2001 recession followed higher GDP growth than the 2008 recession, because the 2008 recession followed a period of time where the Fed provided more monetary stimulus than it did in the prior one. Well, this time, this current expansion has required more monetary stimulus than ever, and it has produced an even meager annual rate of growth. But that means that if the pattern continues, when this uh, bubble pops, the recession will be much, much worse 
than the one that we had in 08, right? Because the one that we had in 08 was way worse than the one that we had in 01. It's kind of like a Richter scale of how bad it's going to be. So if you thought the 08 recession was bad, wait till you see how bad this next one is going to be. And of course, what's going to make it so much worse is because there's nothing the government can do about it. There's no way that they can slow it down. They are out of ammunition. They, the next round of QE is, is going to be an overdose. We're going to destroy the dollar. Long-term interest rates are going to rise, not fall, particularly for over-leveraged corporations, right? We talked about how they've been playing around uh, with their debt to try to keep their interest rates artificially low. Well, that's going to explode. We are headed for a perfect storm. And one interesting fact, too, that I, I forgot to point out when it comes to the consumer spending portion of the GDP, which of course was the driver of the, the number, was that the biggest category of spending, where consumers increased spending the most, the category was recreational vehicles, which is generally RVs. And of course, that statistic, I read this article on Zero Hedge website because they pointed out, and I had remembered reading these articles myself, but it was just like last week that RV dealers were complaining about plunging sales. And they were in particular pointing to the tariffs, which were driving up the costs and which was, you know, scaring away buyers. So on the one hand, you have RV dealers claiming that sales are slumping. uh, They're going through the floor. They can't sell RVs and they're blaming the tariffs. But then the government tells us that the reason consumer spending was so much stronger than we thought was because they spent so much money on RVs. Now, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, first of all, I am more likely to believe the RV dealers themselves than the government. So if the RV dealers are saying that sales are falling and the government's just saying they're going through the roof, somebody is not telling the truth and it's more likely the government. Now we'll see. I mean, maybe this will be revised. Maybe somebody just miscalculated something. I don't know. They do a lot of revisions. What the Zero Hedge article pointed out is, but for that increase in RV sales, if you just take that out, the GDP number would have actually missed expectations. Even with all the consumer spending on other stuff, if you subtracted the increase that they spent on RVs, remember, I've been trying to sell my RV for, I don't know, well over a year. I mean, nobody wants to buy it. even offered to accept Bitcoin for my RV, and I still can't find any takers. So I don't know where these RV sales are booming when, you know, I can't even get inquiries. I mean, I got a couple of lowball offers, which I have turned down uh, for my RV. Uh, But I I just don't think that consumers are actually buying all these RVs unless they're buying an RV instead of a house. Uh, And if people are forced to, you know, live in an RV because they can't afford a house, that's not a sign of good times. That's a sign of bad times. And of course, most RVs are pretty expensive. And I'm sure the average American, if he's buying an RV, he's taken on a lot of debt to do so. And we'll see if he can even pay the money back. But while I'm talking about debt, I got to mention that... uh, the House of Representatives voted to approve this disaster of a budget deal uh, that was agreed to by President Trump. In fact, President Trump uh, tweeted about it, how this is such a great deal. This is a phenomenal deal uh, for the country because it enabled us to you know, get more money spent on, on the military. This is a massive sellout. But look at the, the vote. This bill passed the House by a vote of 284 to 149. But of the 149 uh, representatives who voted against the deal, 132 were Republicans. 
only 16 Democrats voted against this bill. So it passed based on overwhelming Democratic support. 219 Democrats voted for it and only 65 Republicans. Now, if you remember, when the Democrats took the House of Representatives, what did I say on this podcast? What did I write about uh, in my commentaries? I said that Trump was going to work with the Democrats right, and spend even more money in his the second half of his term than he did in the first. And that's exactly what he's done and that's exactly what he is going to do. He is working arm in arm with the Democrats to sell the country down the river, right? Because he is a politician. He is not a, a, a um, statesman. He does not care about the country. He is simply trying to keep this bubble going and to get reelected. Now, hopefully these 65 Republicans who voted in favor of this thing, I don't want any of those guys to get reelected. They don't deserve to be reelected. How are they even calling themselves Republicans having voted for this bill? The bill actually increases government spending by $320 billion above the levels that uh, it was supposed to be at had we abided by the limits uh, that were uh, you know, put into the 2011 budget deal. So they just basically blew that up. They dramatically increased military spending and welfare spending, and they suspended the debt ceiling all the way until July 31st 2021, right? So basically, there's no debt ceiling between now and July 31st, 2021. That means the sky is the limit. That means the government can borrow as much as it wants. It can spend as much as it wants. There's no limit. This is a horrible deal, right? If Donald Trump really cared about draining the swamp, right, he would not even let this uh, the debt ceiling increase. I mean, Trump kept talking about how everybody would be winning. It's the swamp that's winning. The biggest winner of the Trump presidency is the swamp. The swamp is deeper and murkier than it's ever been, right? This is a field day for the career politicians. It is a feeding frenzy, right? Everybody is getting more money, right? More goodies. uh, And we're running up the deficits like there's no tomorrow. Is that what we needed? Is that why we elected Trump? I mean, did we elect Trump because government was too small? Right? And we needed somebody to make it bigger. Was that why we elected Trump? Because we government wasn't big enough? Did we elect Trump because government wasn't spending enough money? That was the problem with the country before Trump is that our politicians just wouldn't spend enough money and we needed Trump to come in there and really show them how to do it. Is that why we elected Trump? Or did we elect Trump because we didn't have enough debt? Was the national debt just too small? Did the career politicians just not know how to borrow money? And so we needed the king of debt. We needed to crown the king of debt, the king of America, so he can show politicians how to really run up debt. Is that why we sent this man to Washington? Of course not. We sent him to Washington to do the opposite of what he's doing. Yet he has let down every single person who has voted for him, including me, yet all the people who voted for him still support him. That is the problem. And the more Republicans support the president, the more the president is going to keep doing what he's doing and the more Republicans he will convince to support these policies. So maybe the next big budget busting bill, maybe more than 65 Republicans are going to join with Democrats. These are all rhinos, right? That's what the president is doing. Trump is convincing the rhinos to vote with the Democrats to make government bigger. I mean, Democrats love this budget bill. It's more government. It makes government bigger. And what they really like about it 
is the position it's going to put the next Democratic president in because the Republican opposition to spending and borrowing is going to be eviscerated. There's no way in 2021 when we have a, a socialist Democrat president and a Democratic Congress, no Republicans are going to be able to say, oh, we don't have the money, we can't borrow this money, we have too much debt. Because, hey, you were all in favor of all this debt when it was benefiting the rich. You were all in favor of debt for tax cuts for corporations. So why can't we borrow the money when it's for the people? Right? This is for programs that the people need. And all of a sudden, you, you want to be stingy? You want to claim we don't have any money? I mean, the Republicans are basically going to be castrated uh, when it comes to their ability to try to introduce any kind of fiscal prudence uh, into the budget process. So again, I think as I said on my last podcast, it's going to be all gas and no brakes when it comes to government spending and borrowing, with the exception of our creditors. I mean, we're not going to be able to put the brakes on ourselves, but we're ultimately going to have the brakes forced upon us by our creditors because they're not going to want to lend us any money. That's what's going to happen. And the Fed is going to have to print all the money. But the problem is the Fed may print it, but nobody may want it. Right? The government can create all the money it wants, but it can't force people to accept it. It certainly can't force foreigners to accept it in exchange for, for imports. So they're going to print a bunch of money that doesn't buy very much. And this is a recipe for disaster. We're going to have a currency crisis. We're going to have a sovereign debt crisis. You know, they're still talking about a strong dollar. Larry Kudlow uh, was on CNBC today to talk about how great the economy was. Of course, the CNBC uh, reporter interviewing him doesn't understand enough about the economy or economics to actually call Cudlow out on all of his BS. But, you know, they did ask him about uh, a strong dollar and whether or not we had a weak dollar policy. And, of course, Cudlow would never admit that we had a weak dollar policy. But basically, what Cudlow said is, look, he believes in a strong dollar. He just doesn't like it when other currencies go down. He doesn't like other countries pursuing policies that weaken their currency against the dollar. Well, that's the same difference. I mean, when you're talking about a strong dollar when it comes to foreign exchange, right, not just domestic purchasing power, but when you're talking about a strong dollar relative to other currencies, it's all, you know, it's a relative number. So whether the dollar goes up or the euro or the yen goes down, it's the same difference. The dollar gets stronger when other currencies go down in relationship to the dollar. So you can't say you want a strong dollar on the one hand, but you don't want other currencies to be weak because the strong dollar by definition means those other currencies are weak because that's the only way the dollar gets strong. Other currencies have to weaken relative to the dollar for the dollar to get strong. Even if it's the dollar going up, you know, by definition, those other currencies have now gone down in relation to the dollar. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say you want the dollar to be strong, but you don't want other currencies to be weak when a strong dollar necessitates other currencies to be weak. So basically, they don't even know what to say. Obviously, they would like to have a strong dollar, but they're not going to get the strong dollar. They're going to get a weak dollar. And, you know, he, Cudlow came out and said that they're not going to do anything in the Forex market to weaken the dollar, which they don't have to do because the dollar is going to weaken all on its own. These massive budget deficits are going to weaken the dollar. These massive trade deficits are going to weaken the dollar. The only reason the dollar hasn't already collapsed is because people still don't perceive what's going on. I mean, the world and investors still are buying into this nonsense that the U.S. has a strong economy, that the U.S. economy is stronger than other economies. I mean, Trump was on there again today saying we're the hottest economy in the world. We're the envy of the world. We're booming like no other economy. No, we're not. 
The only thing that's booming is government and consumer spending based on debt, which is completely unsustainable. But when the world figures this out, and they always do after the fact, the dollar is going to tank. And then nobody is going to be talking about a strong dollar. It's going to be a weak dollar. And everybody is going to be running from the dollar as fast as they can. Because not only is the dollar going to be losing value relative to other currencies, it is going to be losing domestic purchasing power. Prices are really going to go up. Consumer prices. And this is the Achilles heel. This is what is going to crack this phony foundation uh, that this economy has been built on. If it's built on credit and consumption, and it's all financed by debt and the printing press, ultimately what happens is consumer prices go way up, long-term interest rates go way up, and that cracks the foundation. And the whole house of cards economy that's been erected on top of it comes tumbling down. Now, another thing that Trump said in this uh, kind of like a press conference that he was giving this afternoon from the White House is he was talking about the trade deals and rather the lack of trade deals with China and a theory that the president advanced, which to me is, is an excuse, but I guess it's a pretty good uh, gimmick to come up with or a good spin is Trump is saying that the reason that we don't have this great trade deal with China is because the Chinese are now looking at the 2020 election and they are hoping that Trump loses. And then they have sleepy Joe Biden or some other Democrat to negotiate with who they'll be able to walk all over and they'll be able to negotiate a great deal. Now, of course, Trump claims that he's a shoo-in to be reelected. So if, he, if, it's, if it's such a you know, high probability of him being reelected, then why would the Chinese want to wait for the outcome of the election? Well, Trump himself even mentioned, he said, well, you know, even if it's just a 2% chance that I lose, they're still waiting. They want to take that long shot. They, they, want, to wait to, they want to wait until November of 2020 on the long shot, on the 2% probability that I lose this election, and then they're going to be able to you know, uh, walk all over uh, a Democrat, which is a bunch of nonsense. First of all, the probability of Trump losing is a lot higher than 2%. I mean, it's, I mean, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, the long shot is Trump wins. But again, the markets still haven't accepted that because they still assume that people are going to vote on the economy and that the economy is strong, and so he's going to win. Well, they're right in that people are going to vote on the economy, but the economy is lousy, which is why Trump is going to lose. People just don't realize how lousy the economy is now. They will realize it by November 2020, and the media will help them realize it if they haven't already figured it out. But again, remember, what did I say? I kept saying that there probably would not be a deal, but that Trump would have to keep dangling the prospect of a deal in front of us, in front of the markets, but never actually disappoint the markets by coming up with a lousy deal. Well, now he's found a way to not only dangle the prospect of a deal in front of the markets, he's dangling it in front of voters. He's basically saying, we're going to get this great trade deal, but you're going to have to reelect me to get it. Right? I couldn't give deliver the goods in my first term because all these guys are hoping I don't get reelected. And so in order to get the great trade deal, you have to vote for me in November of 2020. And then right away, in fact, what Trump said is the minute I win the election, right away, everyone's going to fold and we're going to have all these great deals. I mean, this is a brilliant strategy for Trump because not only could he dangle the prospect of this great uh, deal in front of the markets all the way through uh, the elections, but now he can dangle it in front of voters as a reason for people to vote for him. But of course, if this is true, if foreigners are really waiting for Trump to lose, right? Well, even if he wins, well, just wait another four years, right? Because he can only run uh, 
two terms, right? He can only be there eight years. So if they were willing to wait for four years, why not wait another four, right? Because then then they'll have a weak person. And, you know, unless they think, well, it's going to be Pence or something like that. But this whole, it's all nonsense. If Trump could get a good trade deal, he would have gotten it already. But now he simply wants to use the prospect of a good deal, which he can't get, uh, to dangle in front of the markets and voters to try to win a second term. It's not going to work. And again, the reason that we have record trade deficits right now, the reason the trade deficits are bigger than ever, the reason the trade deficit last quarter subtracted more from GDP than it has at any point in the last 10 years is not because of bad trade deals. It's because of a bad economy. It's because of structural problems in the economy that Trump has not only not helped fix, but has made worse, right? The problems that underlie the economy that are leading to the trade deficits have worsened ever since Trump became president. Now, those trends were in motion before he became president, but he has done nothing to reverse them. That's why we are losing bigger now on trade than ever before. And that's why this looming financial crisis, economic crisis, is much bigger now and will be much worse than the last one because the problems have been building up. Right? We have kicked the can down the road for so much longer and the extra few years of can kicking that were enabled by massive uh, borrowing uh, because of Trump's election, all of this has simply acted to increase the very severity and the depths and duration of this coming crisis. You know, there's a point that I've, I've, I wanted to make and I, I just kept forgetting to bring it up, but it just came up, uh, uh, you know, in with me in something that I was doing. And I don't, a lot of people don't know it. So I thought I would, uh, I would bring this up, but a lot of stuff happened with the job cuts and tax act, uh, of 2017. A lot of people don't realize the hidden tax increases that were actually buried in this so-called tax cut act. And, and one of them has to do with the deductibility of personal legal fees. So before the 2017, uh, tax reform, if an individual, and I'm not talking about a business because a business can deduct all of its operating expenses, but I'm talking about an individual. If an individual sues somebody, right, and they win, they pay attorney's costs. Now, sometimes individuals pay an hourly rate to their attorney, or sometimes they hire an attorney who works on contingency. And so they pay a percentage of, of what they win. Now, this is certainly very common in personal injury cases. And the tax changes don't really affect personal injury because when you get an award for personal injury, the award is not taxable. So let's say, you know, you lose your arm uh, because somebody, you know, some machine is faulty and you end up losing your arm and you get a $2 million compensatory damages, right? You get that judgment, you know, you don't pay taxes on that $2 million because you got the $2 million because you lost your arm. So the $2 million isn't really income to you because you lost your arm. You know, in theory, the arm that you lost is worth $2 million, right? That's why you got awarded $2 million. So if you lost a $2 million arm in exchange for $2 million of cash, you're no better off, right? You're equal in theory. Uh, so there's no tax there. But obviously, if you got punitive damages, right, if the jury awarded you $2 million in compensatory damage and they gave you another $10 million in punitive damages, that punitive damage would be considered taxable income and you would have to pay taxes on it. But most of the time, if you sue somebody and you win, whatever money you win is going to be taxable income, right? Well, the way the tax code worked in the past, whatever you paid the attorney, you can deduct that 
in your miscellaneous deductions part of your tax return. Uh, and there was some limitation there. You, you could not deduct uh, the amount that was under 2% of your income. But there were a lot of other expenses that went in there, like uh, non-reimbursed uh, expenses from your, you know, that you had from your job. Uh, there were a lot of other things that were there. Uh, but once you maxed out the 2% threshold, then everything above that was fully deductible. Well, what changed in 2017 is that personal legal expenses are no longer deductible. Right? So you can't deduct them against any money that you may win in a legal judgment. So let's say somebody sues somebody for a million dollars. Well, I don't know, whatever it is. Let's say it's slander or whatever. Something happens. It's not a business. It's one individual sues another individual. Uh, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They were defrauded or something, you know, something, something went wrong uh, and they file a lawsuit. And let's say they, they get a contingency attorney and the contingency is going to work for 40%. Okay, you don't have to pay me any money. Just I'll take 40% of whatever I get for you. And the, 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 the individual agrees, hires the attorney on a contingency basis, and the contingency attorney is going to get 40%. Now, let's say the attorney succeeds and he gets a million dollars for his client. Right? Now, he gets a million dollars for the client and he takes 400000 for himself because that's 40%. Now, the client gets 600000 right? Well, here's what the government says. The government says, okay, you won a million dollars. Well, we want, let's say it's 40% federal tax on a million dollars, right? So you won a million dollars, so we want 400,000 in tax. But they don't let you deduct from your taxes the 400,000 that the attorney took. So even though you only get 600,000 of the million because the attorney kept 400,000, you still have to pay 400,000 in tax on the full million dollar reward. So now, not only did you pay your contingency attorney 400,000, you paid 400,000 in tax. That only leaves you with 200,000. So you sue for a million and after taxes and legal bills, you've got $200,000 left. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, first of all, how can a government that is supposedly taxing income, because that's what the 16th amendment says that the government can tax, the government can tax income. Well, if I sue somebody for a million dollars, but the legal cost of getting that million dollars is 400,000, my income on that lawsuit is only 600,000. It's the 100,000 I won plus the 400,000 it cost me to collect the 100,000 because income is revenues minus expenses. But what the government is saying now is that we're not taxing your income on a lawsuit, we're taxing your revenue. We don't care how much it costs you to generate that income. I mean, what if you found a lawyer that said, hey, I'm going to work for 70% contingency. What if I sued somebody and I won a million dollars and the lawyer took 700,000? Well, if, if I had to pay 400,000 in tax, but I only got 300,000, I would actually lose $100,000 because I won a million dollars based on this nonsense. This is illegal. The government can't just tax revenues like that. It's an income tax. It isn't a revenue tax. And your income on a lawsuit is the money that you earn minus what it costs you to earn it. But nobody talks about this. Nobody brings this up. This is actually a massive tax increase. And think about the windfall for the government because there's a million dollar judgment uh, that is being paid by the defendant. The, the plaintiff gets taxed on the whole million. He can't deduct the 400000 that he pays his attorney. But then the attorney also pays income tax on the 400000 
that he billed his client. So on a million dollar judgment, the IRS or the government gets to collect income taxes on 1.4 million. So there's only 1 million of income, right, between the two parties because the lawyer and the client are splitting up the 1 million. So between the two of them, there's a million dollars of income, although the lawyer obviously is going to have his own expenses. He's going to be able to deduct something from his 400,000, his rent or his secretaries or whatever. But just thinking about the money that's coming in, there's 1 million that's coming in that's being split, right? 600,000 to the client, 400,000 to the government. But now the government gets to tax, put an income tax on the 1.4 million, right? There's 400,000 of made up income that didn't exist that now the government gets to tax based on this change, which is completely unconstitutional, but nobody cares. But nobody, again, is talking about the fact that you can no longer deduct this. And, you know, what I think is going to happen is when the Democrats come in and when they jack taxes back up and they're going to jack taxes back up, a lot of this stuff is going to stay there. They're not going to put this back in. So they're going to leave all the tax hikes that were buried in the, uh, the 2017 bill. They're going to leave all those tax hikes there Right? And then they're going to raise the rates up to levels that are that are far higher than they were originally. So basically, this whole tax act is going to come back to bite everybody. All the people who supported it are going to rue the day they did because we're going to end up paying higher rates and having fewer deductions at the same time. Also, a lot of people have been emailing me. Uh, they wanted me to talk about what's going on in Puerto Rico, particularly because you know I live in Puerto Rico, so I certainly should have something to say about what's going on there. And of course, I haven't been to Puerto Rico at all since this whole uh, uh, Ricky Leaks thing uh, broke, which is what they're calling uh, the uh, you know the scandal right now that has been plaguing uh, the Puerto Rican government. So I haven't actually been on the island. So I've been watching everything from afar, just like everybody else. But you know, I will comment a little bit about what's going on. Of course, all this started when there was a bunch of indictments that came out against a number of government officials and private sector officials for basically colluding uh, to divert government money uh, for personal gain to private uh, sources, which is, of course, I mean, what else would you expect, right? I mean, this is what happens. I mean, it is not a shock. It reminds me of that scene from uh, Casablanca. You know, I'm shocked that gambling is going on here. I mean, why would anybody be shocked that there is corruption in the Puerto Rican government? I mean, think about Puerto Rico. I mean, if you are a fan of democratic socialism. Just take a look at Puerto Rico because they're the most democratically socialist uh, part of the United States. And it's a basket case, right? The only thing they got going for them uh, are, you know, these new uh, acts that have brought people like me and other entrepreneurs to Puerto Rico. That's the only bright spot in an otherwise very gloomy uh, um, situation down there. But the way Puerto Rican politicians get elected is they promise to steal stuff from other people and give it to the people who vote for them, right? It's all about handouts uh, to the voters. And of course, where is the money coming from that is being handed out? It's being stolen from somebody, right? Either it's being stolen uh, in the form of taxation, or more recently, they're just borrowing money that they can never pay back. And so if you're borrowing money and don't pay it back, you're actually stealing from your creditors, right? Because you, you borrow money that you know you can never pay back, well, that's basically theft. And that's really what they're doing, right? That's all these elections are. It's uh, advanced auctions on this, the sale of stolen goods. So if you are voting people in who are basically thieves, right? Because if somebody is going to steal for you, right, and, and give you money, they're a thief, right? So if they're going to steal for you, why would you be shocked if while they're stealing for you, 
they steal a little bit for themselves too. I mean, if you're a thief, then what's the difference, right? You're already stealing money. And if it's okay to steal, if you can steal and give what you steal to the voters, why not take a little bit for yourself, right? I mean, no problem. So this is what happens, right? When you lie down uh, with thieves, right? And so this is this is the deal that everybody in Puerto Rico has made. And now they're complaining, oh, there's corruption in government. There's a bunch of thieves. And so, uh, but after those indictments came out, there was a leak of a you know, conversation, a bunch of text conversations uh, between the governor and a lot of people in his administration, all males. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the language was, you know, I mean, I, a bunch of guys talking to each other. I don't know why these idiots didn't realize that they shouldn't put this type of language in text. I mean, can you imagine what these guys actually said, uh, you know, when they, were actually, when they were talking? I mean, this is the stuff they wrote down. And, of course, a lot of incendiatory language in there, particularly directed at homosexuals, Ricky Martin in particular, you know, from Puerto Rico, but also a, a, a woman uh, they refer to as a, a whore. And apparently, uh, you know, he's uh, uh, the governor sent sent the finger or text to the finger. But of course, this person is on the control board, right? The re what's happening is, you know, when Puerto Rico went bankrupt, uh, there was a control board that was implemented to try to rein in government spending, to try to get the Puerto Rican government to reduce spending, right? Which they don't want to do. That's why they're telling the the the, the, the control board to you know f off because they don't want to do what they're being ordered to do. They don't want to reduce government spending. They don't want to reduce the 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 uh, the loot that they are re delivering voters because that's how they're in power. They have to keep delivering the stolen goods in order to get reelected. And so when you have a foreign power ordering you to steal less money, well, then you're giving them the finger because you don't want to steal less money because you want to get reelected. So, but no one cares about that part. They're really up in arms about the fact uh, that some people uh, were made fun of. In fact, you know, they made fun of some obese people. Uh, they made fun of apparently uh, a lot of people, right? So they, they basically stepped on a lot of uh, sacred cows, especially in the, you know, LBGTQ, I don't know, maybe I left out a letter or added one, I always forget, community. Uh, but that that sparked, you know, massive protests. I mean, I don't know, half a million, a million people, a relatively large percentage of the island, right, protesting, demanding uh, that the governor resign. And he finally bowed into the pressure. He held off for a long time, but now he's resigned. But apparently they don't even like the replacement. They want, they want her to resign and she hasn't even... Uh, taking the oath of office yet, uh, but you know there, the the reality is that the next governor will likely be as corrupt, if not more corrupt, than the governor who's leaving, because nothing is going to change because the voters of Puerto Rico still don't want it to change because they still want all their free stuff, they still want government to provide them with things, they still want uh, all these supposed benefits that they believe they're getting from government, and and so I don't know what they're actually doing. I mean, it would be much better. If the protests were against big government, against crony capitalism, if they wanted government to be smaller, if they were demanding privatization, all they want is less corrupt people to handle the distribution of the stolen goods. They want the government to keep on stealing, but just not siphon any off for themselves. I mean, how do you expect thieves to do that, right? I mean, why wouldn't they skim the skim, right? I mean, that's how crooks operate. They're not going to be, you know, uh, dishonest for you, but then honest for themselves. So, you know, nothing is going to change here. Uh, and, you know, what's really crazy, too, is when you see some of these liberals, some of these liberal Democratic candidates, you know, I stand with the people of Puerto Rico. You know, we need we need new government. 
the problems in Puerto Rico are a direct consequence of the socialism that's there, of all the big government spending, of the welfare state, of the, you know, uh, the minimum wage. All these things, you know, are crippling the Puerto Rican economy. All these guaranteed workers' rights and workers' protections, all these laws that supposedly protect people are impoverishing people. And that, of course, is why people are so upset, right? I mean, the economy is weak, but it's not weak simply because the politicians are corrupt. It's because the politicians are doing what the voters have asked. The voters have asked them to do things that are bad for the economy. And that's, you know, the, the root problem when it comes to democracy. I mean, it's all in evidence in Puerto Rico because when people can vote for free stuff, that's what they do. And they don't understand how expensive that free stuff is. And the, the best way to get things is not from the government for free, but in the free market when you buy it. Right? And so what they need in Puerto Rico is just not another governor. They need an entirely new government. But in order to do that, they need an entirely new mindset. I mean, somehow the Puerto Rican voters need to be educated to understand that what they've been voting for is what's bad for them. And they basically got what they deserve. What they've gotten from this government is exactly what they've been voting for. I mean, this guy's father was the governor, and they had the same uh, corruption scandal when his father was governor over 20 years ago, like in the 1990s. Yet they elected the son of the guy anyway. I mean, what do they expect, right? It's you do the same thing over and over again, and you expect a different result, right? Well, if you keep lying down with pigs, you're going to keep smell, you know, you're going to keep waking up smelling like, you know, you know what? I almost forgot, I want to remind everybody again, on Monday night, I am going to do the deflation challenge. It is going to be a live stream on my YouTube channel, just like I did the live stream for the Bitcoin challenge, the deflation challenge. I say the deflationists are all wet, that it's not deflation, it's inflation that's coming. It's inflation that we need to prepare for. So if you want to challenge me, if you want to argue that I'm wrong and that it's deflation, if you have any points you want to make, uh, Monday night is the time to do it. If you just have questions, if you want to ask me why I think it's inflation, not deflation, you know, whatever questions you want to ask on the subject, I'll be able to answer them live on my YouTube channel. It's on Monday night, right? 9 p.m. Eastern time, 6 p.m. Pacific. This Monday night. So this is Friday. On Monday, immediately following the weekend, we're going to be doing the second live stream on YouTube, my deflation challenge. So make sure and be there and participate.